Well, good morning, Redeemer Church. How are we doing this morning? Glad to see all you are able to uh, weather the winter blizzard of 16. I want to ask you to turn your Bibles to 1 Samuel chapter 4. And as you're turning to 1 Samuel chapter 4, I want to remind you of some things about God. God is eternal. He has no beginning or end. The Scripture says that before the mountains were brought forth, or ever you had formed the earth and the, and the world, from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. God is invisible. I mean, at various times in human history, God revealed Himself to people in some type of form or some type of way, but no one has ever seen or ever can see the totality of His essence. That's why Jesus says no one has ever seen God. God is spirit, which is to say that He exists in such a way that His being is not made of any matter. He has no parts, He has no sizes, He has no dimensions. That's why Jesus said God is spirit. God is unchangeable. He is not like us. We change from day to day and hour to hour and even minute to minute sometimes. But God never changes. That's why He says, for I the Lord do not change. God is omniscient. He knows everything. He is always fully aware of everything. God has never learned anything and He's never caught off guard by anything. That's why the Scripture says that no creature is hidden from His sight, but all things are naked and exposed to the eyes of Him to whom we must give account. Scripture said He knows everything. God is omnipresent. He is at all places, at all times, with His full being. The Scripture says that that He works all things according to the counsel of His will. And then David says, where can I go from your spirit? Essentially, he says, I can go to the middle of the sea and you're there. I can go to the top of a mountain or you're there. I can run as far as I can run. But hold, you are always there. God is independent. He doesn't need us. He's not dependent on us. He is sufficient and fulfilled in and of himself. That's why Paul, when he was preaching in Athens, said God doesn't live in temples made by human hands. Nor is he served by humans as though he needed anything. God doesn't need anything. God is holy, which is to say He is sinless. He is supreme. He is set apart. He is the holy other. That is why that for the ages and ages of eternity, we will sing, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. He is righteous, which is to say He always does what is right because His character is right. The Scripture says all His ways are justice. A God of faithfulness, without iniquity, just and upright is He. But you know what? God is also jealous. God protects His own honor. He desires that worship be given to Him and Him alone because He knows that He is the only one who is worthy of worship and He is the only one who can bring ultimate and eternal joy to worshipers. Scripture says, I, the Lord, am holy and I am jealous. God is also angry. He's angry. He's angry at sin. 
He's angry at people who behold His beauty and behold His goodness and yet reject it and run away from Him and rebel against His glory. The Scripture says the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. God is perfect. He fully possesses every excellent quality that can be possessed in fullness and completeness. That's why Jesus says your heavenly Father is perfect. God is wise. God always chooses the best means to accomplish the best possible goals. He is the only wise God. He is also good. He is the ultimate and final standard of goodness, and He's also the ultimate and final source of all goodness. That's why the Scripture says that every good gift comes from where? Above. God is love. God pursues the highest good, sacrificially and generously, of His people. That's why the Scripture says God is love, and that God shows His love for us, in that while we were yet sinners, what? Christ died for us. Which, which then causes us to summarize that God is beautiful. He possesses every quality that is awesome and desirable and truly present. That's why the, the, the psalmist says, because your steadfast love is better than life, my lips will praise you. Now I, I begin this morning by telling you about God because as one of your leaders of this church, I want to be on record as declaring who God is and what God is about so that you will not be ignorant of Him, but you will know Him. That you will not reject Him, but that you will accept Him. That you will not idolize certain things in this life and and reject His worship, but rather you will worship Him and celebrate Him because you know Him and who He is. Because we're about to enter into a text whereby it is a gray, gray day in the kingdom of God because leaders have not loved God. They don't know God. They don't worship Him. As a matter of fact, they hate the Lord. They have contempt for His sacrifices and for His offerings. And because of that, they don't teach the people about their God. They don't lead people in worship of God. As a matter of fact, they lead the people of God away from Him, not to Him. And we're about to see what happens when leaders... Don't teach and preach and love and pursue the glory of God. Would you please bow your head and pray with me? Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And give us this day, give us in this moment, everything that is needed for life and for godliness. Lord, would you please just scoot our chairs up to the the table of your word that we might feast right now. Father, give us a good meal. Give us a, a nourishing meal. Give us an enjoyable meal that we may be fueled to go out and live for your glory and find joy at your table that we might advance your kingdom in the midst of chaos and crisis by the power of the Holy Spirit. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Hophni and Phinehas are leaders of the people of Israel. They are the sons of Eli. 
Hophni and Phinehas have not been trained in the word. They have not been taught, trained, or cultivated in a relationship with God or a love for God. And in and of themselves, they're sinners and, and they're out for their own glory rather than God's. And Eli, who is the, the chief leader of Israel, has been um, all too willing to neglect his own leadership role and his own calling to bring a knowledge of the glory of God to the people of Israel. And so what has happened in Israel at this time is, is a neglect of God. It is a neglect of His holiness and His glory and a neglect of worship. And so what God does is He raises up a little boy whose name is what? Samuel. And we see that God, in the way that He raises up Samuel, is that He's going to raise up worship again in the kingdom. He's going to raise up honor and praise in the kingdom. And you can see the momentum building. But, but the very first thing that God does in speaking to this prophet Samuel is to declare the judgment of these evil leaders, of these neglectful leaders. And this is essentially what God says. He says to Samuel, you are to speak this message that I am about to cut off Eli and his house. That's where we land in 1 Samuel chapter 4. If you look down at verse 1 in the very first part, it says the word of Samuel came to all Israel. That word that God is about to judge Eli and his sons, that he is about to punish Eli and his sons, came to all Israel because Samuel spoke the word of the Lord. Now, during this time, there were frequent battles that were happening between the Israelites and the Philistines. If you just read through the Bible from beginning to this point, you see that that happens. And we don't know exactly why that the text, why the, the two are going to battle right now, as you see in the second part of verse 1. But this is what we can guess. It, it is about superiority in the land. All right? And so what happens is, is the Philistines go up to their battle camp, and the Israelites go up to their battle camp, and they go up against one another. And on that day, if you're looking down at the text, how many Israelites fall? 4,000 Israelites fall in battle against the Philistines. And obviously, they're upset. They're, they're, they're mourning for their fellow soldiers and, and for their family members who die. And so, in their mind, they've got to think, we've got to do something. Or else the Philistines are going to capture us, they're going to rule us, they're going to dominate us. And so this is what we're going to do. Let's get the Ark of the Lord. Now, if, you, if you're looking down at the text, they ask the question, why? Why has the hand of the Lord come against us? Why has the Lord allowed us to be defeated? And listen, listen, that's a good question to ask. The question why is good to ask. But if you also notice, they don't pause to give the answer. They don't pause to hear from God. They don't pause to pray and to seek the will of God. No, they just rush into their decision. Now, what is, what, what is important for us to understand about the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord is that the Ark is not God. The Ark is a representation of the glory of God and the holiness of God. It is a gold-plated box that is about four feet long. It's about two feet wide and two feet deep. 
And on the top of it is this cherubim, which is like these superhuman features of probably maybe wings and, and, and looks like a human, but also looks like an angel. And, and it is to, to designate the reality that our God is big and that he reigns. And inside the ark is what? The Ten Commandments. And the Ten Commandments start off by saying, saying, I am the Lord your God who delivered you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. And that is to tell us that our God speaks to us. And then on top of this ark is what's called the mercy seat. And once a year, the, the high priest would walk in in the seventh month on the tenth day of the month and he would sling what on top of the mercy seat? Blood. Blood as a sacrificial offering to be, to, to be the forgiveness of sins of all the people of Israel so that the ark was a representation that God forgives. Listen, listen. God reigns. God speaks. God forgives. He is a great God. But this ark is not God. But Israel says, we got to go get God. we got to go get the ark, and we'll bring them into our camp, and then we'll get victory. And so Hophni and Phinehas, these priests who hate God, who have contempt for the offering of God, come prancing into the battle camp of Israel, right beside the ark of God, and Israel goes crazy. Israel gets excited. Israel just is thrilled because they know now they have to have the victory. They're going to have the victory. I'll just put the pause button for just one moment. I once spoke to a football team right before they headed out to play their arch rival. And I shared a story about how an intruder was trying to come into my house and I would not let the intruder come into my house because it was my house. And I looked at the football team and I said, don't let anybody come in your house and take what belongs to you. This is your stadium. This is your team. This is your season. And they went out and took the field and I've never seen a team more excited than I've ever on a football field. And within seven minutes, the score was 26 to nothing. They were losing. Now, now I got them fired up, and they were super pumped. But when you don't prepare well, when you're not equipped, I will tell you, energy and excitement and motivation and inspiration will carry you about about as far as the kickoff. Okay? Now, this is exactly what happens here with Israel. They're fired up. They're excited. But you know what? They have no loyalty to God. They have no love for God. They have no worship of God. But they just say, we got God in this box. And so they go out to battle. And the Philistines are immediately afraid when they hear all this rising. A God has entered the camp. A God has entered the camp. What are we going to do? This is the same God who delivered them out of Egypt. This is the same God who parted the seas. This is the same God who caused them to cross the Jordan. What are we going to do? But the Philistines take courage and they say, be men and let's go out and fight. And sure enough, they fought. And what happens to Israel? They are utterly decimated. 30,000 men fall that day against the Philistines. They said, what? We had the ark of God. We had God on our side. There's no way we could possibly lose. And yet, they absolutely lose. And and after the battle, there is a man of Benjamin. And I just want to tell you that when the Bible gives little details like there was a man of Benjamin, that's just not a throwaway phrase. 
Do you know who ultimately becomes the first king of Israel? It was a man of Benjamin named Saul. It's setting the course for us to study the rest of this book. But he runs the 15 to 20 miles up and down the mountains and through the creeks and the rivers in order to get back to Shiloh to report as to what has happened to the Israelite army. And sitting on his post right at the road is old 98-year-old Eli. He can't see. He, he can't even get around on his own because of his blindness and because of his health. And, and essentially, the Benjamite runs past Eli, essentially ignoring him. This Benjamite, his clothes are torn. He's got ashes and dust on his head to show how he's mourning over what has happened. And he goes and tells the city of Shiloh, and there's immediately weeping and wailing. Why? Because there are sons who are dead. There are dads who are dead. There are fathers who are dead. There are friends who are dead. It is a terrible day in Israel. And then once Eli hears that, finally the Benjamite makes his way back to the front of the city at the city gate. And he tells Eli what has happened. Look down at verse 10. The ark of God was captured. The two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, died. Verse 14, all the city cried out. Verse 13, verse 14. Eli heard the sound of the ike cry, and he said, what is this uproar? And the man hurried and came and told him. And what happens to Eli? What happens to him? Verse 18, as soon as the Benjamite mentioned the ark of God had been captured, Eli fell over backward from his seat by the side of the gate, and his neck was broken, and he died. Church, let me ask you this. God is doing a lot in the midst of allowing the ark to be captured and allowing 30,000 soldiers of Israel to be killed. But he's also fulfilling something. What is he fulfilling in this event? What? Yes, his promise to punish and to end and judge Hophni, Phinehas, and Eli. Now, when Miss Phinehas hears about what all had taken place, she has great mourning. She has uh, just a great sense of, of terror that comes over her. And she's pregnant. And so she goes into premature labor. And, and she gives birth to a child. Not just a child, but a son. And, and all of the ladies who are gathered around her are trying to console her because she's about to die. You can tell that. But they're consoling her because at least she's born a son. And she cries out and names the son what? Ichabod. Ichabod. Now let me give you a little lesson here on the name Ichabod. We talk about glory a lot here at Redeemer Church. We talk about glory, glory, glory. The Hebrew word for glory is kavod. Kavod. It means heaviness. It means weightiness. It means bigness. All right? Ichavod. Ichavod. Ichabod. Glory. But she, she attaches that prefix to it. It means without glory. Or no glory. Because she says, look at her phrase, the glory has departed from Israel for the ark of God has been captured. Now she speaks more theology in her death than her husband ever spoke in his entire life. But look down at the phrase because I want to give you some irony here. 
the irony here is that while her words are potentially accurate in one degree, the reality is that the ark of God has been captured because the glory has departed from Israel, not vice versa. This is the hijack of God and God's ark. And what we're now about to see is that the Philistines take the ark of God back to their central hub of worship, a town called Ashdod. Now, Ashdod apparently was the spiritual center of Philistia because that was the house of Dagon, and Dagon was their primary god. And just like all other peoples who had a primary god, they had a house for their god. And so what they do is they take this ark, which is supposedly the god of Israel, and they bring it into the house of Dagon, and they set it beside Dagon, and what they're doing is essentially saying, our God defeated the Israelite God. Our God is more powerful than the Israelite God. Our God rules over the Israelite God. We are a great people. And so they set up the ark beside Dagon. This is likely a statue of a being of some sort, human and possibly otherwise, and they celebrate into the night. And when they wake up the next day, and some of them walk into the house of Dagon, they find Dagon down on the floor like this before the ark of God. Now, I'm not exactly sure what went on in their minds, but what do they do? They take him and they prop him back up. (laughs) This is their God. And they take their God and prop their God back up. And we don't know exactly what happened the rest of the day. But they go to bed the next night. And when they come back into the house of Dagon, this time Dagon is not in his place. And he is down on the floor face down. But his head has been cut off. His hands have been cut off. And is sitting right on the threshold. And they look at this. And and. And there's a lot of thoughts that could go in their mind. There's a lot of things that could happen. But instead of looking at this ark of God, Yahweh, the one who is eternally is and is eternally present and, and apparently uh, powerful over our God, instead of bowing before God and worshiping Him, they say we've got to get rid of this God as soon as we possibly can. Now in the midst of that, the text says that the hand of the Lord was heavy. It was heavy. Do you know that that's the same word? Kavod. Glory. The hand of God had glory upon the people of Philistia and Ashdod. And in doing so, listen, this is the uncomfortable part of God. He strikes the people of Ashdod with tumors. And so their people are running around likely, some, some even believe it was like the bubonic plague because we know that rats were involved in this thing. And so there are tumors that are breaking out on everyone's body. People are terrified. They're in a panic. And so they go and consult the lords of the Philistines, the five lords of the Philistines, which if I can remember correctly, you have Ashdod and Gath and Ashkelon and Gaza 
and Ekron. And so you have five lords who represent these five major cities in Philistia. They come together to have a council, so to speak. This was like the, the gathering together of all the, the chief wise men and kings in that land. And they said, what can we do because we can't have this ark in our town? And so they decide to take it over to the next town. What's the name of the next town? Gath. And sure enough, in Gath, the hand of the Lord was heavy even there. And so what happens? A great panic. He afflicted the men of the city. Young men, old men, tumors are breaking out everywhere. People are being afflicted. And so they don't even consult with the, with the judges. They don't consult with these leaders. They just immediately take the ark over to Ekron. And as soon as the ark of God came to Ekron, the people of Ekron cry out, they've brought the ark to us so that it will kill us, so that it will destroy us. We can't have this. There is no way, because there's a deathly panic in the whole city, and the hand of God was very, what? Heavy. It was glorious there. And the men who did not die were struck with tumors, and the cry of the city went up to heaven. The next chapter tells us that the ark of the Lord was in Philistia for seven months. And so the lords of the Philistines gather again and they say, what can we possibly do? This ark is destroying us. It is afflicting us. It's terrifying us. And they go to the spiritual gurus of their day the diviners, the mediators, and they sit down with these experts on spirituality and religion and they say, what can we possibly do? And these these diviners say, well, this is what you need to do. You have offended this God and He is angry with you. You have sinned essentially against Him and so you've got to offer a guilt offering. You have to offer a guilt offering for what you've done. Now guys, let's just put a pause button on the story for just a second. Now, they're, what they're about to, to give as a prescription for how to deal with it is just out in left field somewhere. But, but, but let's, let's say this, that it is a universal reality of the human heart that when you're guilty of sin, you want to make up for it in some way. You ever felt guilty about something and you're like, I just can't sleep. I just can't, I can't conduct myself the way that I should conduct myself until I do something about my guilt. Look, that's not just a 21st century American deal. That is a universal truth of the human heart that when I'm guilty, I've got to be, I've got to do something to get rid of my guilt. Well, that's what's going on here. And so what do they say? This is what, this is what we're going to do. They say, you guys need to get uh, some gold and you need to shape five pieces of gold into what looks like these tumors that you're having on your body. Mike, you're laughing. I'm glad you're laughing because <laughs> that is hilarious. Um, and then you're going to take some more gold and you're going to shape them into these rats. And you're going to put these five golden tumors and these five golden rats and you're going to put them in a box you're going to build a a new cart and then you're going to put the ark on top of the cart 
And then you're going to go and get two cows, not yoked cows, but milk cows who've never even seen a yoke. And you're going to put them in a yoke and you're going to take their little calves who are sucking on them away from them and carry it back to a barn and lock them up. And as you put these milk cows who've never been yoked in the yoke and you put the ark on top of the cart and you put the box with all the gold in beside the ark, if these cows walk in unison, not back toward their barn, but up toward Israel, and if they don't turn to the right or to the left and walk directly into Israel, then you will know it will not be by sheer coincidence that all this stuff has happened to you. You want to talk about stacking the deck against Yahweh? (laughs) That's what I call stacking the deck. But what happens? These milk cows who've never been yoked walk in unison, not turning to the right or to the left, away from Philistia and up into Israel. And these Philistine kings, these five kings, follow this cart all the way up to Beth Shemesh and they can't believe what they're seeing. And as they see Israel celebrate because Israel is out in the fields gathering their harvest for the season and they see the ark of God in all of its brightness, in all of its glory and they see that it's returned to them and they begin to celebrate. The Philistine lords just turn back and say, I'm glad that's over. And then what we see unfold is beautiful worship we see this rock, the land of Joshua Beth Shemesh, and they take the ark off of the, of the cart. The Levites do, prescribed men who are called to handle the ark, and then they take the wood of the cart, and they start a fire, and then they take those two cows, and they kill the cows and, and sacrifice sacrifices and offer offerings up to God as an act of worship that the glory of the Lord has returned. And if the story stopped there, it would be a beautiful story of wonderful redemption. But there are some men in Israel who treat the holiness and the glory of God with too much familiarity. There are men in Israel who decide instead of standing away from the ark of God and praising the God who is in heaven, We're going to get close to the ark of God. We're going to examine the ark of God. And even though the ark is supposed to be in the holy place, and even though the ark is only reserved for the high priest, and even though the ark is a mere representation of the glory of God, we're going to get close. We're going to get familiar. We're going to get beside it. It's going to become a casual thing to us. And what does God do? He does. He kills them. He strikes down the men of Israel because they treat the Lord's ark with contempt. So let's look down at the remainder of the text. Who is able to stand before the Lord? Church, y'all say what comes after that. This holy God. And to whom shall he go up away from us? The people of Israel have the exact same attitude as the people of Philistia. Get this God away from us. So they sent messengers to the inhabitants of Kiriath-Jerim, the next town northeast, saying, The Philistines have returned the ark of the Lord. Come down and take it up to you. And the men of Kiriath-Jerim came and took it up and brought it to the house of Abinadab on the hill. And they consecrated his son Eleazar to have charge of the ark of the Lord. 
From the day that the ark was lodged at Kiriath-Jerim, a long time passed, some 20 years, and all the house of Israel lamented after the Lord. I want to ask the question right now what was the underlying problem in this entire story don't answer it out loud yet what is the underlying problem from chapter 4 verse 1 all the way to chapter 7 verse 2 think of it in chronological terms think what was the fundamental problem when Israel took the ark to the battlefield They had a stronger desire to twist God's arm to do what they wanted Him to do than to sit before God and pursue Him for who He is and the worthiness and the glory of His character and seeking His will in the midst of their problem. Let's use God for our agenda rather than to bow before God and see what His agenda is in our lives. What was the fundamental problem of the Philistines as they experienced God's heavy hand on them? Their allegiance to their impotent idol was stronger than their reverence for the Lord of glory. They didn't look at Yahweh and see what He did to Dagon and say, Wow! Our God has been emasculated. Our God has been been embarrassed. Our God has been revealed as a fraud. Yahweh is obviously more powerful than our God. We should consider worshiping Him rather than Dagon. No. What did they do? They just tried to get rid of the Lord as fast as they could so that He would not disrupt their idolatry. What was the fundamental problem of the Israelite men in Beth Shemesh? It wasn't that they hated the ark. They didn't hate God. They just belittled the holiness of God. By treating the ark of God with disrespect, they lacked awe for the holiness of God. I want to tell you, church, that the underlying problem in this entire story can be summed up in one word. Irreverence. Irreverence. I believe that God is calling us as a church to a fresh reverence for the greatness of God and the holiness of God, and yes, the glory, the heaviness of God. But in order to do so, we've got to know what irreverence is, and we've got to, we've got to have it exposed in our own lives. So if you want to ask the question, what is irreverence? Irreverence is a lack of awe for the matchless beauty and infinite excellence of the God of glory. That's what irreverence is. It is a lack of awe. A lack of being thrilled with God. A lack of beholding the glory of God and being absolutely mesmerized by it. And then it producing within you respect. Producing within you reverence. It's a deficiency of being overwhelmed by and overjoyed with the greatness of God. It is treating the Lord as if He is something other than the Creator, Redeemer, Sustainer, and Lord of the entire universe. 
is failing to give praise where praise is due. It's redirecting reverence for God to a God substitute. Irreverence is the root and source of every sinful thing that we think. Every sinful thing that we want. Every sinful thing that we choose. Every sinful thing that we do. It is the reason that we experience all personal problems and all relational problems because we do not revere God for who He is. Every beautiful landscape that you see with your eyes Every sweet aroma that you smell with your nose. Every exquisite food that you taste with your mouth. Every harmonious tune that you hear with your ears. Every amazing texture that you feel with your hands. Every wonderful relationship that you experience with your soul is not designed to terminate there. It is designed to terminate in the Lord of glory. But what we do as humans is we terminate our joy and our awe and our reverence in that thing, in that person. And so we become horizontal in our view of life, stripping away from us the vertical dimension for which we were created. When you and I don't end our amazement and our reverence for whatever it is that we're experiencing in the Lord of glory, we immediately become idolaters. When we reverence what God created more than we reverence God Himself, we are guilty of irreverence. And when we irreverence God, we put ourselves, listen, we put ourselves on the slippery slope of ignoring His glory belittling His holiness and ultimately using Him to advance our own agenda. Now, now that's critical because I believe that that is exactly what happened in Israel. The leaders of Israel got on the slippery slope of ignoring God. And as they ignored Him, they belittled Him. And as they belittled Him, they began to use Him for their own agenda rather than His. And you and I, can do the same thing in our own lives. How do we do that? Think about the cross of Jesus Christ. Think about the beauty of the gospel. Think about what God has done to rescue our souls to produce in us glad and full and joyful worship because we have a deliverer, we have a Savior, we have one who has rescued us from the pollution of sin, the power of sin, the penalty of sin. And that should produce in us reverence and awe and love and delight no matter what's going on around us in our lives. And yet, we use the cross of Christ as a simple way to get out of hell And we keep letting our lives be the center of our lives and our will be the center of our will and our goals and our dreams and our ambitions, not to match God's for our lives, but for it simply to be our own. And then we want to just take God and the gospel along for the ride with us. I got a list of a few things that 
that we do just simple things in which we irreverence God. When it's Communion Sunday and we pass the bread and we pass the cup and you have an unrepentant heart and you take the bread and you take the cup, you're demonstrating irreverence for a holy God. When you have opportunity to give praise to God and you keep your mouth shut, you're irreverencing a holy God. By the way, I just want to say that just because you give testimony among the people of God, nobody expects you to be perfect from that point forward. We're just giving testimony to a perfect God. We're not raising the bar of perfection among people. But when you have the opportunity to give to the Lord's work and you either don't give to the Lord's work or you give a very small amount to what the Lord is doing in building His kingdom, then you are irreverencing God. I read a recent statistic that, that the average Christian gives 2% of their income to the Lord's work. That's irreverence. When you won't be late for a ball game, or a school event, or a doctor's appointment, but you'll regularly be late for worship or Bible study, then you are irreverencing God. When you fill your life with entertainment, and it doesn't matter whether it's a TV show, or a movie, or social media, but you will not spend time communing with God as you read His Word, and as you pray to Him, you are irreverencing a holy God will tell you the root of irreverence, the source of irreverence, begins with an ignorance of God. And your ignorance of God starts when you're unwilling to listen to Him as you're confronted with His Word. Your ignorance is perpetuated as you don't talk to Him and allow Him to hear your cares and your concerns. And then is further perpetuated as when you live your life out of that ignorance, you begin to disbelieve the promises and the person of God. And you start making sense of your life apart from God and His Word and His will and His revelation. And you start trying to fix things and repair things and try to manipulate things because you no longer are living by faith in God. You're living by faith in yourself. You no longer reverence God because you don't know Him and you no longer live for God because you don't believe Him and you no longer believe God. Now you're in opposition to Him. But the beautiful thing is that God rescues us from our irreverence. He does it for me every day. I don't know if you thought about this as we were looking at the story, but God is willing to humiliate Himself in the eyes of people in order to recapture His people to enjoy His glory and to revel in His goodness. The ark of God is captured. The glory of God is seemingly diminished. Here He is in full display. He's been hidden behind the tent. And yet this gold-plated box, this cherubim, this law that's in the middle, in, in the, inside the box, and, and this, uh, this mercy seat that is on top, it's all open for people to see and it's captured. 
God has been captured. He's been hijacked. He's been kidnapped. God is willing to be disrespected among the people of this world in order to capture our hearts again to reverence Him. We see it most clearly at the cross of Jesus Christ. Where He is beaten, He is stripped, He is maligned, He is ridiculed, He is up on the cross for all the world to see. And they are laughing at Him. They are mocking at Him. They they, they can't believe the indignity of what they're seeing. And they're all rejoicing in it. And what is God doing? God is using this to draw an irreverent, unholy people to Himself. Robbie, God humiliates Himself to bring you to Himself. He does that for you, Ben. He does that for me. What an amazing God we serve. Fact is, we're all irreverent. What can we do with our irreverence? Is we can run to the cross and we can say, God... You have humiliated Yourself not for me to run further away from You, but closer to You. Would You forgive me of my sin? Would You redeem my, all of my irreverences that I may run deeper into the, to the deep end of Your love and Your grace and Your mercy? Yeah. One of the things that I came to a very clear realization of this week as I read the text over and over was that I have Dagons in my life. And when I take the Lord of glory and I put Him beside my Dagon and I see the power of God the sovereignty of God, the heaviness of God, and the worthiness of God, I have the same option that the Philistines had. I can either get rid of Dagon and throw him away and bow before this Lord of glory, or I can say, yes, he's glorious, yes, he's worthy, yes, he's heavy, yes, he's big, but I love Dagon more than him. Please get him out of my life. I want to ask you today, church, Do you have a Dagon? Do you have an idol? Something that you love so much? Something that you find so much pleasure in? Something that you find so much joy and contentment and satisfaction and identity in that you behold the glory of God and yet you recognize who He is and you say, no, Dagon means too much to me to get rid of Him. I'd ask you to just bow in prayer right now. The Lord is calling you to revere Him. The Lord is calling you to respect Him. The Lord is calling for you to take your Dagon and throw it out and bow before the holiness, greatness, wonderfulness, grace, love, mercy, faithfulness of the mighty God of heaven and earth so that you can find joy in Him and in Him alone. That's what He's calling you to right now. Church, you know you're glorifying something when you find it beautiful for what it is in and of itself and not for what it can do for you. I want to ask you right now, do you enjoy God 
for who he is or more for what he can do for you. Father, in this time of meditation and response, my prayer is that you will obliterate any agenda that we may be tempted to have on our own and make your agenda to build your kingdom the only agenda that matters to us. Do this for Redeemer Church, for your glory and our joy. Sometimes you have to hit rock bottom before you can go up to the mountaintop. Sometimes you've got to experience deep darkness before you can actually see and experience the beautiful light. Sometimes you've got to go through terrible failures in order to have some success. In the case of the Lord and the building of His kingdom, you can take the qualifiers sometimes out of it. You and I have to hit rock bottom if we're ever going to go to the mountaintop of God's glory. We have to go through the darkness of seeing our sin for what it is and then running away from that and running to Christ. We have to experience the failure of self-glory, of self-autonomy, self-independence, self-centeredness, and we have to run away from that as if we were running out of the temple of Dagon and we have to run to God. If we saw irreverence played out in the passage today, I've got to call you to reverence, and we've got to say this is reverence. Reverence is respect for the holiness of God. Reverence is reveling in the mercy of God. And reverence is running daily to the Son of God where you find your worth, your identity, your value, your significance, and the forgiveness of all your irreverences. I'm calling you to respond to this text today because this text is calling you to respond to God. Ben, would you walk to the back? Ben, one of our elders is going to be available for prayer, for counsel, for encouragement. I know this. I know this. God's calling us to respond, and the response is not merely, wow, that was an interesting text today. The response to some degree in your life, I don't know what it looks like, is to respect the holiness of God. It's to revel in the grace of God. It's to run to the Son of God. And if you need help with that today, if you need encouragement in that, if you need to be equipped in that, then I encourage you to go to, go to Ben. I encourage you to come to me. Come to anybody here that we can pray for you and encourage you that we might be a church who reverences the glory of God. Can I get an amen? Amen. Amen.